3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to 8.30 a.m. Good morning, listeners. You are on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 a.m. Good morning, Leela. Good morning, Priya. How's it going? Well, you know, I'm just out here celebrating the 1st of February. (laughs) Yeah, wow. (laughs) Time flies when everything's falling apart. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like, do we we start on that at least once a month, I think? (laughs) I think every single month that it's not January, we're like, wow, this year's going way too (laughs) fast. Yeah. Um, It's just, I can't believe it's X time in the year. Um, We have a full show for you, as usual. Um, A lot of, I think, really important conversations this week. Um, I guess talking about the relationships between multiple genocides today, but also talking Mm. about different things, different interventions, um, both at the level of the community, but also in the publishing industry that are kind of pushing back against the normalization um, of, you know, increased surveillance and brutality when people are responding to these kinds of atrocities. So uh, to start up, uh, sorry, to start off with, um, we are going to hear from Armenian activist N, who spoke with me earlier this week about the material links between Azerbaijan, Turkey and Israel. And through this, about the connections between the genocides of Armenian and Palestinian peoples. And this conversation draws a through line between historical and contemporary genocidal processes being waged by Israel, Azerbaijan and Turkey, as well as touching on the longstanding presence of Armenians in Jerusalem. And we are also going to share this morning a little excerpt from Kian's performance at um, Black Stage on the 29th of January. Black Stage is Victoria's longest-running regular Koori music night, and it's just a really beautiful vibe for community to gather, share music, stories, and, um, yeah, whatever else. It's open mic, so... You always get something a little bit unexpected and the quality is always really exceptional. Yeah. Um, I think it's put on by deadly events, right? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So keep an eye out. Hosted uh, at the retreat. Yes. At deadly events on Instagram. Um, and after that, we are going to hear another pre-record that I did earlier this week with Tess, who's the editor of Slingshot Books. And we talked about the importance of making space on the publishing scene for disorderly, revolutionary and liberatory conversations with young people that disrupt status quo assumptions about the necessity of shielding kids from political complexity and radical perspectives. Um, Slingshot has its first book out for pre-order, which is called Then and Now by Datsun Tran. And yeah, I'm really excited to, to bring this conversation to everyone because um, yeah, we really got to talk about how there's not too much variety or um, trust in the belief of kids to be able to grasp and engage with complex, you know, ideas in children's publishing. So, yeah. Yeah. And then we're going to be discussing uh, 
actions that happened at a community picket, which was held between Friday the 19th and Monday the 22nd of January. Um, it was put in place at WebDoc in Nam, Victoria, uh, a peaceful anti-genocide action established to prevent the transport of goods out of so-called Australia via Israeli freight company Zim Shipping. And this morning we are going to welcome Brenner, the current admin coordinator for Melbourne Activist Legal Service, to discuss serious concerns about policing at the peaceful protest. Uh, Brenner is a legal observer with a background in education, organisational leadership, protest organising and activist support. And Melbourne Activist Legal Service, you might have heard from them before on our show, it's an all-volunteer organisation that provides training for protest movements, information and resources on the rights to protest in Victoria and fields legal observer teams that monitor and report on policing of protest events. Yeah, amazing. I'm really excited to hear um, their reflections on this and I'm sure Brenna will have um, heaps of information and, and direction towards resources that people can kind of look at um, to keep themselves safe at, at rallies, but also, you know, unfortunately, just keep an eye out for what cops have been doing um, in, in sort of an escalation of crackdown on protesters. Yeah, it does appear to be repeated behaviours, problematic behaviours. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and finally, we are joined by Elam Tamil activist and member of Tamil Refugee Council, Renega in Pakumar, who's going to talk about Tamil Oppression Day, which falls on the 4th of February. Now, this date signifies the handover of power from the British colonial government to Sinhalese leadership in Sri Lanka, heralding the beginning of 75 years of, gen- uh, sorry, 76 years of genocide of Elam Tamils. And the Tamil Refugee Council is going to be holding a demonstration this Sunday, the 4th of February at 9 a.m outside the Sri Lankan embassy in Canberra. So make sure to get along if you're in town, and we'll share information about that in our show notes. We'll head to a CSA and come back to you with headlines. What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. The people of Gaza, who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16-year siege, are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them. This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop. Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved. Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance. Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years. It has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active. APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. These are the news headlines for Thursday the 1st of February. The Australian government has this week made the reckless and despicable move to join other rich pro-Israel countries in suspending funding to the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine refugees, known as UNRWA. The Albanese government's shameful decision in support of Israel's genocide was made even more shameful, as it was announced the same day the interim ruling by the International Court of Justice was handed down, 
ordering Israel to prevent acts that could amount to genocide against Palestinians. At least 26,000 Palestinian people have been killed by Israel in the past four months, and UNRWA is one of the main organisations providing life-saving supplies to the Palestinians who survived the attacks, but are subjected to the ongoing blockade and forced displacement. Palestinians in Gaza have made it clear the funding cuts will be a death sentence, saying people will starve in the streets if aid supplies are halted. In other news, a 26-year-old Townsville man was shot dead by Queensland police this week during a so-called mental health check. According to the chief superintendent's statement, there were six police officers in the man's home when he was shot. At the time of the superintendent's statement, body-worn camera footage had not been reviewed to give evidence to claims that the man threatened police. This latest police killing occurred amongst repeated urges by mental health workers that police should not be involved in mental health checks and responses, which this was, citing research that shows the presence of police escalates mental distress. Also in headlines, with a note that First Nations listeners may find elements of this story distressing. A complaint has been filed with the Australian Human Rights Commission against the New South Wales Department of Communities alleging unjust removal of First Nations children from their families. In what the lawyers describe as a modern-day stolen generation, it is alleged that the widespread racism across a number of state governments has has resulted in First Nations children being placed into state foster care systems when they should never have been removed from their families or communities. This complaint filing comes amidst reports that two First Nations children are stuck in the United Kingdom without passports after their foster carers received ministerial permission to take the children to the UK in 2019. Prior to that fostering arrangement, the two siblings were in the care of the New South Wales Department of Communities following their removal from their Wiradjuri mother in 2010. The Secretariat of National Aboriginal and Islander Childcare, known as NSNAICC, are calling for immediate action from the government, with SNAICC Chief Executive Arnett Lerija woman Catherine Little saying, quote, This is yet another demonstration of how child protection systems are failing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children and families, end quote. In other news, a class action has been filed against the Victorian government to protect the rights of public housing residents who were told last year that their homes will be demolished as part of Victoria's housing statement. The claim, filed by Inner Melbourne Community Legal, states the government failed to consider the human rights of residents when it made the decision to demolish all 44 public housing towers by 2051. Residents impacted by the plan say the decision is taking an emotional and physical toll and that the government did not consult with residents or even tell them about the decision before it was announced with fanfare via the media. Finally in headlines, the Victorian government is also being called out this week by animal rights advocates and Victorian First Nations people over rejection of a duck hunting ban. The Allen government released its response to an inquiry calling for recreational duck hunting to be banned across all Victorian public and private land, saying that hunting is a legitimate activity. Federal Senator Lydia Thorpe said, quote, 
Tuck the Musk Duck is the totem and mother of Gurnakai people, and Premier Allen's gutless decision not to ban duck shooting in Victoria means ongoing slaughter of native water birds and totems, end quote. Wildlife Victoria released a statement saying the decision flies in the face of taxpayer-funded parliamentary inquiry and that the $10 million the state government spends to support 12,000 shooters to kill ducks for eight weeks a year is wasteful and shameful. These have been the news headlines for Thursday the 1st of February. You're listening to 3CR. When I was new to Melbourne, I found a footnote bombs fly on the road and I had like this fist with a carrot and carrots are my favourite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at footnote bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And now we're going to listen to a pre-record that I did earlier this week with Armenian activist N about the material links between Azerbaijan, Turkey, and Israel, and through this about the connections between the genocides of Armenian and Palestinian peoples. This conversation draws a through line between historical and contemporary genocidal processes being waged by Israel, Azerbaijan, and Turkey, as well as touching on the long-standing presence of Armenians in Jerusalem. Now, considering the content of this conversation, um, you know, it may raise some things with listeners. It may be a bit distressing. So um, just a note that we'll wrap up in about 15 minutes. So if you want to step away, um, step away for about 15 minutes and um, we'll be playing some lovely music afterwards. But also, if you want to speak to anyone um, about anything that this conversation raises for you, you can always call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Uh, I know this is really difficult to have to talk about, especially in the absence of broader public conversation about the relationships between the Armenian genocide and what's happening in Palestine. So I thought before we jump into the conversation, maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit about where you come to the conversation from. So as much as you'd like to provide by way of context. Thank you. Um, yeah, so I'm just going to um, remain anonymous for my own safety because um, for people who don't know, there is a issue of Turco-fascism in this country. Um, Turkish nationalists do have a paramilitary organization called the Grey Wolves, and they have a real body count of people that they have murdered for saying what I'm about to say. Um, I myself am Armenian. I am an immigrant from Armenia, um, I am also an anarchist communist and I've been organizing here um, and in Europe and in Armenia for the past uh, six or seven years. Um, that's about as much as I want to give away. 
thank you for sharing that as well. I think it's important for um, for people to know that there are, you know, there are folks with histories in this in this struggle and in the in the fight for Armenian liberation who, um, you know, have a really robust analysis of the kind of links between uh, Turkey, Azerbaijan, and Israel, as we're going to talk about uh, today. So, I thought maybe um, we could talk a little bit about the relationships between the genocides of Palestinians and Armenians, because I know that there are, you know, there have been even longstanding links between political support from core Zionists like Theodore Herzl for the Armenian genocide, and then how that sort of links into the current mass ethnic cleansing that we're seeing in Gaza. Yeah. um, So I think it's important to remember that Armenians and Palestinians have lived together side by side peacefully for 1600 years. This is the oldest and longest-running continuous Armenian diaspora um, in history. Um, Armenians actually first arrived in Palestine in the 4th century in the Common Era in the form of a pilgrimage of Armenian priests. Um, Armenians have officially been Christian since the beginning of the 4th century. Um, Christianity became the national religion in 301 in the Common Era, the year 301. The Armenian Church has been preserving the Armenian quarter of the old city of Jerusalem since the 7th century. Um, so like I said, Armenians and Palestinians have lived together peacefully for over 1,600 years, and this marks the oldest continuous diaspora. Um, the population of Armenians in Palestine became about 27,000 after the Armenian Genocide of 1915 to 1923, which never really actually ended. Um, and it was, that genocide the genocide of Armenians was supported by the supposed grandfather of Zionism, Theodore Herzl. Herzl spent the latter period of the 19th century and um, the beginning of the 20th century forging links between his ethno-nationalist ideals and the Ottoman repression of Armenian revolutionaries in the late Ottoman Empire. Um, Armenians under Ottoman rule were legally classified as second-class citizens, and um, Sultan Abdul Hamid empowered Kurds and Circassians to rape and pillage Armenian regions under his own divide-and-conquer policies. Armenians were paying double tax, first to the Ottomans um, and second to the Kurds, while not being legally permitted to construct buildings taller than non-Christian buildings, having no right to testimony in the court of law, and not being permitted to carry daggers or sabers, leaving the population systematically impoverished and vulnerable to atrocities. Um, Theodore Herzl's aim was to stifle the revolutionary movement for Armenian autonomy and self-sufficiency. In return for the Sultan's favor for creating an autonomous Jewish state, either in Syria or in Palestine, Herzl's task was to alter European journalistic bias against the interests of Armenian revolutionary movement um, and to convince the Armenian revolutionaries to diminish their resistance in favor of reforms that never eventuated. Um, so it wasn't actually just the um, journalists, it was also um, politicians, um, like m- mostly also like the British politicians. Um, yeah, so he colluded with the agents of the Sultan and the Sultan himself to forge favorable and mutually beneficial conditions for the construction of the Zionist state within the late Ottoman Empire. Herzl supported the Hamidian massacres of Armenians, which claimed the lives of over 300,000 Armenians. And when the Ottoman Empire lost 75% of its territory of domination in the first decade of the 20th century, including losing Palestine, 
the Young Turk Revolution took hold. The Young Turks, a revolutionary party who attempted to reconstruct the Ottoman Empire under a constitutional monarchy, attempted to solve the so-called Armenian question by means of genocide, which claimed the lives of over 1.5 million Armenians in Anatolia, which is modern-day Turkey, and in Artsakh, which is now Azerbaijan. In 2020, Azerbaijan, a Turkish state, invaded and ethnically cleansed several key cities of Artsakh. Two weeks prior to October 7, 2023, Azerbaijan, using Turkish and Israeli weapons and intelligence, ethnically cleansed the totality of Artsakh of its 120,000 population. The Armenian Genocide of 1915-23 to prompted the historian and genocide scholar Raphael Lemkin to coin the word genocide as he felt that no event of systematic extermination of such a scale could be referred to as a mere massacre and rather required a new word. And so the word genocide itself it has its origins in the Armenian Genocide. The Zionist support of the Hamidian massacres and the Armenian genocide was a device for constructing the modern Zionist state and forging favorable diplomatic ties between so-called Israel and what is now known as Turkey. Turkey itself is a settler colonial state that was built out of the genocide of Armenians, Assyrians and Pontic Greeks and it is maintained off of the continuation of these genocides with the new addition of the Kurdish genocide that Turkey is committing both within the Republic and in Rojava, northeast Syria. Turkey and Israel have materially colluded to continue the Armenian genocide, with Israel supplying over 70% of weapons to Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan and Turkey boast about being one nation under two states, and both endeavor to eradicate Armenia and its population off of the map and construct a new pan-Turkic state. They frequently publish maps that claim all of Armenia in their media, and that's both in Turkey and Azerbaijan. Israel refuses to recognize the Armenian genocide due to Turkish and Azeri pressure. Yeah, thank you so much for this historical context. Now, it, I think being able to draw those very clear links between these genocides is such a crucial, uh, you know, aspect of leading into the next question, which is talking about uh, the state of contemporary Israeli settler violence that's also happening in the Armenian quarter of Jerusalem at the same time um, as we are seeing these attacks on Palestinians in the West Bank accompanying the genocide that is currently happening in Gaza. Yeah, um, so something that people uh, might not know is that at the moment um, the Armenian quarter of uh, the old city of Jerusalem is under attack by settlers who have been basically deputized with uh, weapons by the Israeli state. Um, and uh, this is coming because in 2019 there was a deal that was made between Armenian uh, priests and uh, Israeli-Australian businessman named Danny Rubenstein, also known as Danny Rothman. Um, and he's trying to convert the Armenian quarter into a hotel, basically. At the moment, these uh, acts of violence are um, in the what's called the Cow's Garden in Jerusalem, um, where people have been living there like uh, since like usually like uh, I think the oldest testimonies are like their families have been there since like the eighth century. Um, and yeah, the the agenda is to basically just eradicate Armenians from Palestine. Um, Armenians in Palestine have uh, been more sympathetic to the Palestinian issue than to um, Israeli violence. Um, although Armenians were granted um, citizenship 
uh, under Israeli state law. Um, and also some Armenians who um, were under Jordanian rule were granted Jordanian citizenship. And so Israel had tried to use this kind of divide and conquer strategy to try to pit the Armenians against the Palestinians, but it didn't really work. Yeah, I think that is also very important to add into this is that there are, you know, these sort of complexities about the longstanding um, presence of Armenians in um, in historic Palestine because there are so many very clear material uh, links between the perpetrators that we've sort of identified of, of these genocides. So that's the state of Israel, of Turkey and Azerbaijan, as you said, um, these relationships of resource and military exchanges that continue to facilitate both the genocides of Palestinians and Armenians and very crucially continue to facilitate land theft. Yeah, um, I think um, something that people need to know about is a place called the Leviathan Gas Field. Um, this is something that was only discovered um, in 2015. And um, in 2015, there was a survey that was done in um, the Mediterranean Sea, um, just off the coast of Palestine. And they discovered that there was a 50% chance of there being uh, a great deal of natural gas in the deep sea gas reserves um, in what's called the Leviathan gas field. Um, and what Israel is trying to do at the moment with this genocide is not only to eradicate Palestinians from their own land, but also to profit off of um, untapped resources such as this gas basin. Uh, there's been a, um, a bit of debate as to Turkey's material links with this specific um, endeavor with the Leviathan gas field, but um, there's evidence that Turkey has been um, actually investing in this endeavor. And at the moment, um, Turkey is trying to, uh, in its PR campaigns, pretend like it's pro-Palestine, but really, when you look at the material links between Turkey, Azerbaijan, and Israel, um, you'll see that Turkey is actually materially assisting the genocide of Palestinians and is only saying that it's pro-Palestinian in name only um, to basically like placate its uh, furious population. Um, at the moment, 40%, over 40% of Israel's crude oil Aviation fuel and petroleum is supplied by Azerbaijan um, through Turkey. So Turkey has the opportunity to cut this supply chain and basically immediately stop the genocide in Palestine. And it's refusing to do that because it has a material interest in continuing this. Um, Azerbaijan is not the only country that is doing this. Actually, Russia has been siphoning its own oil and natural gas through Azerbaijan in order to support this genocide. Um, and that's Russia is doing that to bypass its sanctions since the invasion of Ukraine, basically. Um, and this is like this is well documented. People can look this up. Um, but uh, Turkey, we should also note is feeding and clothing Israeli soldiers. Like, the Zionist IOF um, military fatigues are made by Turkey. The rations are produced by Turkey. And um, it has no... Uh, it's, it's, not been, uh, it's not been rolling these aids back. Do you know what I mean? Um, like, 
uh, about a week ago, there was some news headlines saying that Turkey is going to stop investing in Israel, stop supplying it with material aid. Um, and there was no evidence given for this. This was uh, purely... Uh, put out there into the media, um, into the Turkish and Zionist media, so that when you look up Turkey material assistance to Israel on Google, all of the top results, all the top news headlines are that Turkey is stopping its aid to Israel. But Turkey has been rapidly increasing its aid to Israel since 2019, and it's not slowing down at all. There is no proof, and this is just pure propaganda. Um, it's also important to note that Azerbaijan is hosting a Mossad base through which Israel is monitoring Iran. And Iran is the one that is supporting um, Hamas and Hezbollah and, um, and the Houthis. And so this is basically a, a mapping, a power mapping of this war um, that is being ignored by the majority of people who are anti-genocide. And I really want people to come to terms with this reality. Yeah, thank you so much for um, for laying out those material links so clearly. And I know that um, you've probably got some resources you can share that we can link to in our show notes. That's about all we've got time for at the moment. But I just wanted to thank you again for making the time to take us through, I think, something that is really under-discussed. Um, I w- want to thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. And that was Armenian activist N, who spoke with me earlier this week about the material links between Azerbaijan, Turkey, and Israel, and through this about the connections between the genocides of Armenian and Palestinian peoples. And our conversation drew a through line between historical and contemporary genocidal processes being waged by Israel, Azerbaijan, and Turkey, and also touched on the longstanding presence of Armenians in Jerusalem. Now, for further resources on the Armenian struggle, you can head to learnforartsakh.com. So that's L-E-A-R-N, four, F-O-R, A-R-T-S-A-K-H, dot com. And we'll also have that link in our show notes. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR, 855 AM. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. This summer, wildlife are feeling the heat of climate change. Wildlife become stressed and unwell in hot weather and every summer, Wildlife Victoria receives tens of thousands of calls for wildlife assistance. You can make a positive difference to the future of wildlife by donating to Wildlife Victoria. Your donation will help us rescue and care for heat-affected native animals. The future of wildlife is in your hands. Donate to Wildlife Victoria at wildlifevictoria.org.au Wildlife Victoria is a 3CR supporter. The new Climate Action Radio Show will surprise you. 
Well, first of all, I'm not a believer in global warming. I'm not a believer in man-made global warming. And so you'll hear voices from all around Australia and overseas that are taking all types of climate action, whether it's stopping coal and gas, whether it's building a new model of society, or whether it's just sustaining you in the grief you may feel about the climate destruction we're facing. And in that spirit, here's a poem by Rumi. Stop. Take a breath. For you are drunk. And we are at the edge of the roof. This is coal. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. It's coal. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. So next up, we're going to hear a song from Kian, who played at Blackstage on the 30th of January. Now, Blackstage is uh, Nam Victoria's longest-running regular Koori music night. So this is a music night for mob only to get up on stage. It's an open mic night. Um, There's a really high quality of music, um, spoken word poetry, sometimes a bit of stand-up, which is really fun. Uh, It's a really important space for community to come together and yeah, I just wanted to share a bit of what I'd been experiencing going down on a weekly basis is on Tuesday nights. And next up, you're going to hear Sunsets by Kian and produced by Alice Sky. <laughs> Resuscitate, I'm alive. 
You just heard Sunsets by Kian, who played at Black Stage, uh, all mob open mic night held at the retreat on Tuesday nights. And hopefully in coming weeks, we'll have some more excerpts from the night and yeah, share a bit more of what happens on stage and who was getting up and sharing some people for the first time or yeah, it's really beautiful. Yeah. I really love that, that, um, it's sort of a community event that is accessible for all mob to just basically come in and share their skills and also just their creativity in, in whatever shape that takes. Yeah, actually, I had a interesting conversation about um, how white supremacy, you know, demands us to navigate public space. And I think um, it's a pretty transformative space, black stage, where in many ways it does feel like very held and not so beholden to the usual demands of, um, yeah, white space, white-dominated space. Yeah, and this sort of idea of, like, professionalism and creativity and the notion that things have to be rehearsed and polished to be valuable for yeah. sharing with community. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, actually, we might pivot to something that is... Uh, produced in in a studio. This one is a track that was released by Dobby on the 24th of January. It's called Ancestor, and I've been waiting to play, well, I've been waiting a week to play this. Um, So let's have a listen.
gets told as the wind turns cold up in the shutter Sitting at my desk, heart sinking to my chest, I can feel it flutter I think I hear my ancestors We walk the same path as our elders The spirit never left us I went looking for some answers I found lessons by the riverbed Here's my reflection Brad Stebman got me to a direction Walking this river to comprehend the connection Hey, the road back, what a blessing It's gonna take me a while to convey this message I can feel your presence, no question That warrior spirit's not to be messed with Hey, you can hear me now back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is just coming up to 7.43 in the morning, and that was Dobby's new track, Ancestor, released last week on the 24th of January. Now, we are going to a conversation that I had with Tess, who's the editor of Slingshot Books. And Tess and I spoke earlier this week about the importance of making space on the publishing scene for disorderly, revolutionary, and liberatory conversations with young people that disrupt status quo assumptions about the necessity of shielding kids from political complexity and radical perspectives. Now, Tess worked as an editor for children's publishing companies for a number of years before launching Slingshot Books, which is a tiny, radical children's publishing house based on Wurundjeri land. And just a reminder that you can pre-order Slingshot's first book, The Hauntingly Illustrated Then and Now by Datsun Tran, on their websites. That's slingshotbooks.com.au. But let's have a listen to this conversation. So, Tess, thank you very much for making the time to speak with me. Such a pleasure, Priya. Yeah. Um, I mean, 
I guess we can start off by hearing a bit about yourself and how you came to establish Slingshot Books. So why was it so important to you to make this intervention in the kids' publishing space? I think Slingshot was always an intervention, an interventionist project. Uh, I didn't imagine it becoming one where I published hardback, full-colour, classic picture books. That's something that's definitely emerged through the creative development phase. Initially, I thought I'd be producing zines and risograph kind of content for kids in a very grassroots fashion. But as I progressed and the more I walked into children's bookstores and reflected on how I wanted to contribute to this space, the more I felt a sense of urgency around producing uh, an item that's fairly comparable uh, to a standard picture book, but that offers a worldview or an art style that's underrepresented due to the market-driven, uh, cynical capitalist and largely politically centrist nature of children's publishing in the West and, and, and in this colony. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this leads really well into my next question of making that decision to go from more DIY to a more sort of formal publishing um, setup. Uh, because when these sort of flashpoints, as uh, there have been so many recently, but there always are, arise around racial violence, colonialism, imperialism and capitalism, something that really consistently appears in mainstream public discourse, and this is both conservative or liberal, um, is whether it's appropriate to expose kids to political education from an early age. And I'm sure you have a lot to say about the fallacy of this kind of perspective. Yeah, well, I mean, it's such a white supremacist perspective to suggest that uh, you should shield a child from politics, given that marginalised children from marginalised groups are born into politics, they're politicised from birth. And we see that especially in, in Palestine where, where newborns are deemed demographic threats. It's, it's, an, it's an absurd luxury to shield your child from politics and it's one that only an extremely privileged family could ever achieve. And I think if we're to reassert the status quo, it's essential that we raise children as politically astutely as possible. Yeah, and there's always ways to communicate these kinds of messages to children um, and young people who might not directly be experiencing, you know, these issues themselves. I know that it really is just, you know, like learning at any age, just providing, you know, interpretive frameworks and an understanding more generally about things like racial violence, about things like colonialism. Yeah, I think, I think, um, you can talk about scary or sad or distressing or disappointing or enraging things in a way that is safe. And you can talk about those things in a way that's unsafe. And it's, I think that's, that's, that's the definition that we need to be striking. It's not about shielding children from politics. It's about discussing these these issues in a way that holds them and keeps them safe and asserts their right to childhood and asserts their right to be given age-appropriate answers to their questions. Yeah, and I mean, I think we've seen the uh, quite resounding failure of don't ask, don't tell approaches to, you know, having conversations with young people about things, whether it's racism to sex ed 
So I guess something that's also become even more abundantly clear over the past few months of Israel's escalated genocidal assault on Palestinians is the extent to which media and creative organizations in so-called Australia are either willing to remain silent on Palestine or overtly supportive of Israel, despite progressive posturing on other issues. Now, I know this is a problem that has sort of come up in the publishing industry in particular. So I was wondering um, if you could comment on that and as well about how these tendencies kind of impact upon our cultural exposure to Palestine in this settler colony as well. Priya, there are so many ways you could answer that question. And I'm not Palestinian, so I can't answer it from a lived experience perspective in any in any stretch of the imagination. But I think the first thing that comes to mind when you ask me that question is a book I'm reading at the moment, which is called On Zionist Literature by Ghassan Kanafani. And in it, he talks about how Zionist ideology was first promulgated through literature prior to politics, before the establishment of the, the, the Zionist state. There was a, a broad, a broad range of Zionist literature and how now, even now, now being in the in the in the 60s, I imagine when Dasan was writing this, uh, and I think it's still still the case today. The media, as well as the arts, speak in the same language, using the same the same propaganda talking points as those founding Zionist literature. Um, or those founder Zionist texts, and and those are literature is the foundation for this for this movement. And so, if we want to challenge that ideology, I think it's really important that we challenge it at the level of literature and the arts. Yeah, like as you said, um, there's this discursive element that is so important to sustaining and enabling ongoing land theft and genocide. And it really sort of makes me think about the way that Palestine is consistently silenced or mystified, um, framed as something that is too complex to understand, but also framed in that way by people who are in positions where they can actually provide a robust explanation if they chose to. But that would mean naming that it's a settler colonial project uh, that Israel is, you know, establishing. Mm, absolutely. And I think uh, every every colonial myth, <laughs> every every imperialist myth uh, is is something that that a child asks questions about. You know, as soon as a child begins learning the imperialist myths uh, of of the settler colony that they live in or a settler colony that that's being spoken about in the media or at school, they will begin asking questions and, and deconstructing that myth or seeking to deconstruct that myth. And I think that's where it's really important that, that they the media they consume, the books, the television, the movies, uh, responds to those questions adequately. Yeah. And it's such a bold assumption by, um, potentially some parents and some commentators that uh, that there can ever be a perfect shielding of young people from this information. It will reach them somehow. And, you know, there's a custodial responsibility to kind of have these difficult conversations. Uh, 
Now, I understand that Slingshot already has a book available for pre-order, which is called Then and Now by artist Datsun Tran. So can you tell us a bit about this first release and where people can order a copy? Certainly can. I think uh, it's important to note that the Slingshot project isn't exclusively about making, uh, I guess I would describe, uh, loud or or challenge or like politically... uh, revolutionary, challenging content. It's also about producing books that I'm worried will slip through the cracks in uh, commercial publishing because they're too quiet or they're non-commercial or they don't have enough of a a hook. Uh, They're not zeitgeisty enough. And so children begin to only interact with this uh, risk-averse market-driven content uh, that largely, largely fills the children's bookstores. And so Datsun's book very much fits in the category of of the quiet, non-commercial title that I'm really, really concerned about ensuring child, children can still have access to. It's his work. He's, he's a contemporary artist. He works with traditional materials, with beautiful Chinese calligraphy inks and mulberry paper. And he makes his images by removing colour from the page, which is fascinating, creates this beautiful chiaroscuro, this beautiful play of light and shadow. And I I asked him to make a book for children, and he answered, I already have one. I, I have the text I need. I, I really want to make it into a beautiful picture book. He read the story to me. I cried. I signed it up. And the process since then has been similarly smooth and natural and easy. And his work speaks beautifully I think to children already the broad the broad range of his work but the artworks he's created for this book are created especially for children and I imagine that for many of the kids who pick this book up it's the first time they've ever engaged with contemporary art that's made for them and that's something that really moves me about this book. Yeah I love that um, because it also kind of dispels the myth that children and young people aren't equipped to engage with, you know, higher forms of beauty or whatever. It's like, I think kids have aesthetic sensibilities and it's, it should be perfectly acceptable to cater to those um, in a way that isn't, um, I guess, very middle of the road, bright colors uh, and in a way sort of infantilizing um you know, like there's age appropriate and then there's infantilizing. And I think those are, you know, quite different things. And we can assume that what one child engages with and finds deeply fascinating and another child will find completely boring, just as any other human being. Um, And and so some children will pick this book up and, and be like, finally, finally, I'm looking at artwork that makes sense to me and takes me into a dreaming space and into an imagining space and inspires me to make art myself. And I, I, I know that that's going to happen and that really moves me as well. And from looking at the, um, you know, the images, it is a really beautiful, like calming and quiet and slow kind of visual expression, which provides such a distinct um, point of difference from, I guess, the majority of children's publications. Yeah. Um, Kids can spend a quiet extended time with each artwork and that's just um, something that's so precious. I think that work is obviously, you know, all refugee stories are politicised. 
And so naturally, it also has a political element to it. And Behrouz Bukhani has written a beautiful praise quote for the back cover of this book, talking about how important it is to to humanise refugee stories and to to picture them and and how that's what's important about this book to him and to visualise refugee stories is really important, I think, for children from a really young age. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, so before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask as a final question, what is your dream for Slingshot Books? Uh, harking back to that initial part of the conversation where we talked about it being something entirely different in its initial conception. Uh, how do you conceive of a meaningful impact in this work and what do you want to see Slingshot do going forward? I think just by existing and succeeding, Slingshot does something politically interesting because conventional children's publishing runs on such a different MO and if I can succeed at running an anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist children's publishing venture in this political climate, in this financial climate, then I think that's a politically interesting act in itself. A hundred percent. And, you know, I am definitely aware of a lot of friends who have had uh, babies during the early stages of the pandemic. Um, and so I can imagine that there is a massive appetite from parents for this kind of, um, you know, thoughtful and nuanced content for young people as well. Uh, I know that it's also been a question of trying to figure out what is available to sort of speak to children without necessarily, you know, blaring a political message, but by having that embedded in the kinds of conversations that these books are having with young people. Absolutely. Yeah. And my hope is that these books, I mean, I I always consider as a publisher for children's content that my role is also a, a caregiving role and I take that role very seriously. And I sincerely hope that uh, these books do offer helpful uh, tools to parents in their caregiving. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Tess. We will put all of the information about Slingshot in our show notes, as well as how to pre-order Datsun's book. Um, I really appreciate you making the time. Thanks so much, Priya. It's been a pleasure. And that was Tess, the editor of Slingshot Books, who joined me earlier this week to talk about the importance of making space on the publishing scene for disorderly, revolutionary and liberatory conversations with young people that disrupt status quo assumptions about the necessity of shielding kids from political complexity and radical perspectives. Tess worked as an editor for children's publishing companies for a number of years before launching Slingshot, which is a tiny, radical children's publishing house based on Wurundjeri land. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Have you heard of long COVID? If you or someone you know have had COVID-19, you may still experience symptoms weeks or months later. There are many symptoms of long COVID, but the most frequent are extreme tiredness, shortness of breath, and muscle aches and joint pains. Anyone can experience long COVID, including children. You can find information in your language on the Health Translations website, healthtranslations.vic.gov.au. Just type long COVID as a keyword. A 3CR supporter.
Australia's energy market is broken. Right, but Co-Power gives you better energy? Nope, no retailer can control where the electrons they buy off the grid come from. But as a Co-Power member, you can vote on where 100% of revenue goes. So instead of corporate profit, your energy bill builds the world you want to be a part of. That's cool. Learn more about the solidarity economy and Co-Power today and take the power back. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 6036. A 3CR supporter. Between Friday the 19th and Monday the 22nd of January, a community picket was put in place at WebDoc in Nam, Victoria. The picket was a peaceful anti-genocide action established to prevent the transport of goods out of so-called Australia via Israeli freight company Zim Shipping. This morning we welcome Brenna, the current admin coordinator for Melbourne Activist Legal Service, or MALS, to discuss serious concerns about policing at the peaceful protest. Brenna is a legal observer with a background in education, organisational leadership, protest organising and activist support. And Melbourne Activist Legal Service is an all-volunteer organisation that provides training for protest movements, information and resources on the rights to protest in Victoria and fields legal observer teams that monitor and report on the policing of protest events. Good morning, Brenna. How are you? Uh, Good morning. I'm well. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your time. So first off, um, Mal's released a statement of concern in response to policing that happened at the WebDoc community picket. Can you tell us what prompted the statement of concern and what its aims are? Sure. So Mal's publishes statements of concern whenever our legal observers or witnesses have observed incidences of police misconduct at protests and other activist events. Um, the main aim of our statements of concern is to apply pressure to VicPol uh, by making evidence-based recommendations as independent observers to ensure that police operations are consistent with their human rights obligations. So, for example, this includes making recommendations perhaps to update the Victoria Police Manual uh, to ensure that minimum standards of conduct and adequate accountability measures are uh, uh, deployed if these standards are not upheld. So in this case, uh, our legal observers at the WebDoc picket observed several incidents of police misconduct over the course of the weekend, um, and in particular on Monday, January 22nd. Yeah. Um, mm. uh, yeah, so... On that note, can you run us through some of the central concerns outlined? And could you also detail the incidents that kind of exemplify the most significant breaches of conduct between Friday and Monday? Absolutely. So there there were a few concerns that we've noted in our statement of concern. Um, One was the dangerous and unsafe uh, crowd dispersal manoeuvres. Uh, that Victoria Police uh, employed. Uh, so these operational decisions greatly increased the risk of injury to protesters who were there. Uh, it included the use of mounted police on horses, which is inherently dangerous, but especially so when used amongst large crowds of people because it can escalate fear and tension, can be quite unpredictable. Uh, also included police forcing people to disperse directly into oncoming traffic, uh, towards a busy motorway at peak time um, and then 
kettling people in a car park when the police eventually realised the danger they were putting people in. Um, another concern was the aggressive mistreatment of protesters and medics who were there. Um, this included knocking a protester out of a wheelchair and then yelling at them to stand up, uh, refusing to allow people who'd been sprayed uh, access to first aid assistance, uh, even arresting medics who were providing the first aid assistance. Um, we also noted the presence of uh, surveillance technology. So evidence gathering teams were, were present over the course of the weekend. It was completely unnecessary and a gross invasion of privacy. Um, and police also obstructed legal observers who have a right to, to be there. Uh, they initially didn't allow legal observers access to the main protest site on, on Monday, repeatedly demanding legal observers to justify their presence and eventually police even pushed legal observers into a kettle um, saying that you're with the protesters and indiscriminate use of OC spray, which resulted in one of our legal observers being sprayed themselves. Um, so basically there were numerous examples of unreasonable, disproportionate uh, and excessive use of force yeah. by police against peaceful protesters um, and this... This is just poor policing that exposed people to danger and unsafe situations. But I think the most significant breach was the use of OC spray, which we saw um, against peaceful protesters. It's just another example of Victoria Police's unlawful and excessive use of force, which is used to coerce compliance from people who don't pose a threat to themselves or to others. Um, it's important to note here that failing to comply with police instructions isn't necessarily justification to use OC spray on people and it can even constitute assault. And so what happened at WebDoc is it's part of a pattern of police using OC spray basically as a crowd control tool and it's something Mouse is greatly concerned about. Yeah, absolutely. There's some really disturbing and repeated um, police misconduct outlined mm. in the report and I had a look through... Uh, previous reports from Mal's, and it was striking that, yeah, there's repetition happening. Um, yeah. There's obviously a culture of permitting uh, this kind of misconduct at protests and actions, and as I mentioned before, it was a peaceful action. Um, yeah. So, yeah, really unnecessary use of force. Now, yeah. I want to touch on the issue of surveillance, which you briefly mm -hmm. mentioned before. I just wanted to clear up some things that I've been mm -hmm. hearing. Um, okay. So I received some information that body-worn cameras were allegedly not turned on during mm -hmm. the policing at the picket. Um, I don't know if this was all of the time or some of the time, but mm -hmm. I really wanted to clarify are police obliged to record with body-worn cameras during policing of protests? Are there actually any benefits to them doing this? Or, on the other hand, how might this high level of police surveillance, um, you know, that was noted at the WebDoc picket through um, camera installation, uh, how might it impeach upon the public's right to privacy and potentially put people off from participating in these actions? Yeah, so, yeah, this is another concern for males. Um, uh, are police obliged to, to turn their body-worn cameras off? To be honest, I'm not uh, entirely across the requirements and policies around this. 
Not sure if they're allowed to be turned off, but we do know that police do turn their body-worn cameras on and off quite inconsistently. Yeah. So our concerns are more about the broader implications surrounding the use of any surveillance technology by police. So this includes privacy and security concerns. Um, as with any surveillance tool implied, employed by the police, there's the potential for them to be misused by those um, who are in control of the technology, questions around where the footage and data is stored, who has access to it and when, how it's being used and by whom, etc. Yeah. Um, like you mentioned, the police also installed a mobile CCTV unit on the grounds of the dock one night. Um, and it just shows how Victoria Police deploy uh, an array of surveillance tools that are designed to intimidate people, encroach on their privacy, and really to instil fear, you know, to, to control people's behaviour. Um, and this is an example of, of what's called strategic incapacitation, where police employ tactics to influence people's decision mm. whether or not to exercise their right to protest, whether or not to organise or participate in a protest, um, with the aim of disrupting protest plans and, and even perhaps stopping them before they start. And so any use of any surveillance tools by the police, uh, especially when it's not transparent or adequately regulated, it's a, it's a significant and ongoing concern. Yeah, it's a really powerful coercive tool that we can see mm. being used there Um Regardless of whether we know how that information is being used, it's the fear and then the yeah. self-surveillance that yeah. is implicated after, yeah, putting up CCTV, etc. Mm, um, now, exactly. the statement of concern outlines many things that have been flagged before, as I mentioned, unnecessary use of handcuffs unlawful use of OC spray or pepper spray, and failure to act compatibly with human rights. What can be done, Brenna, to enforce accountability from Victoria Police for these repeated breaches of policy? Yeah, so there are a few options available. Um, People can take the legal route um, and pursue charges against police officers, but this is often quite complicated and difficult um, there are complaint systems that people can make use of, but they're often cumbersome and very slow. Um, and essentially, it's the police investigating complaints against themselves. And so this typically doesn't result yeah. in any meaningful change to policing. So MAL supports calls for an independent police ombudsman. So the establishment of an independent oversight agency that well-resourced, has the capacity to thoroughly investigate complaints against police uh, and also has the power to enforce accountability measures. Uh, But in terms of what people can do themselves outside of these mechanisms, um, we strongly encourage people to call it out publicly every time police actions bring harm to people or when police don't do what the public expects them to do. So, for example, bringing media attention to incidents of police misconduct, Uh, using social media to disseminate information, share videos and photos and to call out police and other authorities in public and and demand a response. Um, And also, if you're comfortable, telling your own story and sharing your own experience can be a really powerful way to highlight, you know, the often significant harm that's inflicted on people as a direct result of poor policing. Um, Basically, the bottom line is we just, we have to call it out every time poor policing results in harm to individuals and communities and apply maximum pressure uh, 
um, to, and really push back on any attempts to limit our rights or or to reduce the political space that we have to work in. Yeah, absolutely. Great advice there. And this final question today, I just mm-hmm. wanted you to speak from your own experience as a legal observer. Is there anything, you know, people listening might be regular participants in actions, and I'm wondering if you think there's anything that people can do to either recognise when police misconduct is happening at an action that they're attending or anything they can do to kind of protect or safeguard themselves if you find yourself in a situation where police misconduct is rife and, yeah, you feel endangered. Mm-hmm. The most important point to remember is if you feel unsafe or in danger, then remove yourself from the situation. That's absolutely the priority is your safety and your, your, your comfort. Um, do your homework and find out what your rights are. So if you know what your rights are and what the police can and can't do, then you're better equipped to identify and recognise when police misconduct is occurring. Um, People can request MALS Legal Observer Teams via our website, MALS.au. So get in touch with us anytime you know there's a protest action happening and we'll try as best as we can to send a legal observer crew down there. Um, Document as much as you can, photos, videos, even audio statements from people and get in contact with MALS because we can offer support after the event as well. Yeah, thank you so much, Brenna. Really important work that Mal's is doing um, for community. So, yeah, thank you for sharing that information and your time this morning. Thank you. My pleasure. Bye. Bye-bye. So we just heard from Brenna, the current admin coordinator for Melbourne Activist Legal Service, who joined us to discuss serious concerns about policing at the peaceful picket at WebDoc to um, prevent the transport of goods out of so-called Australia via Israeli freight company Zim shipping. And Melbourne Legal Melbourne Activist Legal Service is an all-volunteer organisation that provides training for protest movements, information and resources on the rights to protest in Victoria and fields legal observer teams that monitor and report on the policing of protest events. And we'll include um, some resources in our podcast so you can look up yeah, how to keep yourself a bit safer. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au.
Australia's energy market is broken. Right, but Co-Power gives you better energy? Nope, no retailer can control where the electrons they buy off the grid come from. But as a Co-Power member, you can vote on where 100% of revenue goes. So instead of corporate profit, your energy bill builds the world you want to be a part of. That's cool. Learn more about the solidarity economy and Co-Power today and take the power back. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 6036. A 3CR supporter. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And now we are joined by Elam Tamil activist and member of Tamil Refugee Council, Renega Inpakumar, to talk about Tamil Oppression Day, which falls on the 4th of February. Now, this date signifies the handover of power from the British colonial government to Sinhalese leadership in Sri Lanka, heralding the beginning of 76 years of genocide of Elam Tamils. The Tamil Refugee Council will be holding a demonstration this Sunday, the 4th of February at 9 a.m. outside the Sri Lanka, uh, sorry, outside the Sri Lankan embassy in Canberra. So get along if you're in town and we'll have information in our show notes. And a little bit about Renega. She began her activist journey at the age of 10, speaking at various public speaking competitions, drawing awareness of ref- uh, to refugee rights by expressing the need to end indefinite detention and provide permanent protection to all refugees. And Renega is currently a Bachelor of Law Arts student at Western Sydney University and for years now has been organizing to amplify Elam Tamil issues, including Tamil Genocide Day, Do Not Report to Danger, Palm Sunday Tamil Contingent, Tamil Oppression Day and Boycott Sri Lankan Cricket. Good morning, Renega. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good, thanks. Um, thank you for joining us this morning. Um, I thought we might begin by talking about the significance of the 4th of February 1948 for Elam Tamils, given that it marks 76 years since that transition of power from the British colonial government to the Sri Lankan state. So could you speak to this transfer of power and its ushering in of what you and other Elam Tamils describe as 76 years of genocide? Yep, so the Elam Tamils in Tamil Elam were first ruled by a traditional Tamil king. So we had three Tamil kings who ruled over us and we were able to live freely um, and we were able to live in our homeland peacefully. And obviously when colonialists entered into our land, um, they had an oppressive use of power against us and once they left, they handed that oppressive nature to the Sri Lankan state on 4th of February 1948. So... 4th of February to the Sri Lankan state is considered Sri Lanka's Independence Day, but it actually marks the beginning of our genocide. Um, and we have seen our land being taken away from us. And on this 4th of February, um, we see that the Sri Lankan state to this day holds, you know, parades and holds that they believe that they have defeated terrorism and that they have, you know, made this island now a peaceful island. So they, from the beginning of 1948, have been targeting Elam Tamils through the use of repressive state legislation, economic blockades on Tamil majority areas, and horrific pogroms that killed, you know, thousands and forced thousands more to flee. And since February 4th, 1948, successive, you know, Sri Lankan governments have attempted to wipe out the Tamil nation through the acts of genocide. So, for instance, the Citizenship Act in 1948 was implemented, the Singular-only Act in 1956, the Republican Constitution of 1972, and, you know, the burning of Jaffnall Public Library in 1981 are just a few key examples of the steps taken by the state towards this genocide. 
And then we see, you know, the period since independence, it became more violent. So we see, you know, I would directly, you know, point out the years of 1956, 1958, and 1977, and 1983, where these pogroms occurred, where women, men, and And I would say that 2009 was the peak of our genocide, where it was the highest point where, you know, the Sri Lankan state used artillery barrages, the use of intense weaponry on our people, with the help of other international states, including Australia, providing weapons, providing training to commit these genocidal crimes. And to this day, they have not been held accountable. And Mm. people tend to believe that 2009 was the end. However, if we look at from 2009 to now, the Sri Lankan state still commits genocide. You know, we actually have seen in the past year legislation, such as the online safety bill being placed on our people where surveillance is seen mm. on the internet. So, you know, those who, you know, if the Sri Lankan state believe that people are committing terrorist acts, where it might be even just commemorating those that have fallen, they are being able to be placed in prison for a long period of time under the Prevention of Terrorism Act. Mm. So, you know, the Sri Lankan state have meticulously planned a genocide, and it's been going on for 76 years without any form of accountability or comment from the international arena, which is really um, upsetting. And it causes many to question whether geopolitics is considered far more important than justice. Yeah, and I mean, as you as you mentioned, there's been this increasing surveillance and this um, use of the term t- uh, terrorism and mm. its expansive use to kind of describe even just commemoration, but also you know resistance for for Tamil liberation. Now, I know that recently there have been some lukewarm approaches by the Sri Lankan government to kind of change the narrative around relations with Elam Tamils, including last year's announcement by uh, Ranil Wickramasinghe about establishing a Truth and, Reconcilia- Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Now, do you see this as a way to try and avoid international scrutiny? And what role can international legal bodies play in relation to the situation of Elam Tamils? Yes, I definitely think that, you know, it's not even a lukewarm approach. I think it's like rather no approach mm. to actually reconcile, you know, with the Elam Tamil people. Because, you know, if I was to pinpoint some cases, um, there is no reconciliation I've seen with, you know, last year, um, a 13-year-old boy being killed under the torture of police. And actually, a few days ago, a 16-year-old Tamil boy has been interrogated by Sri Lankan police over a kite that had a map of Tamil Elam at a, um, a kite festival. You know, there's been illegal development activities destroying the environment within the north and east. But I must say that international legal bodies definitely need to look at the at the evidence that we have, you know, like last week, the International Truth Justice Project has released um, both the Bayaraja Paksa's role during 2009 being the Secretary of Defense. There's video evidence of Sri Lankan soldiers shooting people um, and laughing, but shooting those that surrendered. Um, and we see the use of the United Nations Security Council has caused geopolitics to be used. So those that are unwilling to actually speak on Sri Lanka due to where it lies um, within the Indian Ocean and the trading routes, which caused nations to be silent. Mm. And we're noticing that nations that have supported Palestine 
need to look at what happened in 2009 in our nation because it's a textbook picture of what's happening in Palestine. The exact same attacks are being happened in Palestine. And Israel is unable to attack Palestine without the use of support. So Sri Lanka is supporting Israel, and it goes back from Israel supporting Sri Lanka. Mm. So these same nation states that are holding Palestine accountable, they need to also hold Sri Lanka accountable. And Mm. that is when we're able to pinpoint other genocides that have been um, committed through the help of other nation states. And this can be a larger narrative rather than a smaller narrative causing other genocides to be looked over. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, yeah. Yeah. And, and it, it definitely evidence is there. It's all there and we have witnesses that are able to speak on this issue and have been. Yeah, of course. And I mean, earlier in today's show, we talked about the relationships between the Armenian genocide and the genocide of Palestinians. Uh-huh. Um, we've also been talking about things around the relationship uh, between uh, Indonesia's genocide of West Papuans. And I think bringing all of these into conversation, especially, you know, looking at the fact that we're on stolen land here in so-called Australia, I think allows us to have a more robust understanding of how these are all connected and how we need to look at international, um, you know, complete by oppressive states um, in the genocides uh, perpetrated by other states. Now, mm-hmm. um, I know we're coming up to, to time very rapidly, um, but um, I'm wondering what the Tamil Refugee Council have planned for the 4th of February and what you hope to achieve with this year's commemoration and demonstration in Canberra, noting that this is going to be held outside the Sri Lankan um, embassy, but also um, that it's going to be held at the, you know, the, the seat of power where the Department of Home Affairs, um, you know, is still, you know, it's coming good, apparently, on its uh, uh, promise about permanent visas as well. So I was wondering if you could speak to those issues and what's happening on Sunday. Yes. Yeah, so on Sunday, um, Tamil Refugee Council will be having some planned speeches for those who stand in solidarity with us as well as witnesses of the genocide. And we'll be standing there from 9 a.m. till lunchtime, um, rallying and speaking on the truth from 1948. Um, and we also understand that refugees, there are 10,000 refugees now without any visas, without any, um, you know, notice of what's going to happen to their future. Um, and we believe that the Department of, um, you know, DFAT needs to look at the country reports that are happening. So the country reports of Sri Lanka is definitely false. There's no truth to it. Um, and these refugees, Tamil people, especially I can speak on, have fled from their own homeland due to the genocide. They have nowhere to go back. Many do not have family back in Tamil Elam, and many to this day are in detention for a prolonged period of time um, in fear of being sent back to danger. And the remaining 10,000 refugees need to be granted permanent protection because they have all fled from you know, war, terror, genocide. And Australia believes that they have um, you know, a land where it welcomes people, but these recent refugee policies do not show that. To definitely young um, voters such as myself, we are unable to actually see which political party supports refugees. And in the wake of you know 4th of February, we are in concern of whether these um, Tamil refugees will be sent back to a government that had uh, held a position during 2009 that committed genocidal crimes on these refugees who were victims of, you know, rape, of, you know, um, seeing their own family members being shot and being bombed. So we really hope that the Australian government actually takes into careful consideration 
of new policies when it comes to refugees, um, including these mm. 10,000 refugees. Yeah, absolutely. And so hopefully um, the demonstration for, um, you know, that, that's happening on Sunday will be able to not just draw attention to and increase scrutiny on the Sri Lankan government, but also, you know, um, as you said, bring attention to the plight of Tamil refugees, but also more broadly, uh, refugees caught in Australia's carceral immigration detention system. Mm-hmm. Um that, you know, is happening at this sort of seat of power in Canberra where these decisions are made and where people's lives are really looked over. Um, now, Renika, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you so much for having me. No problem. And you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. That was Elam Tamil activist and member of Tamil Refugee Council, Renega Inpakumar, who was speaking about Tamil Oppression Day, which falls on the 4th of February. And again, this date signifies the handover of power from the British colonial government to Sinhalese leadership in Sri Lanka, heralding the beginning of 76 years of genocide of Elam Tamils. And the Tamil Refugee Council is going to be holding a demonstration this Sunday, the 4th of February at 9 a.m outside the Sri Lankan embassy in Canberra. So get along if you're in town and we'll have information about that in the show notes. I reckon that is about all we have time for today. Um, any parting words, Leela? Um, I don't think so. It was a great show. It's nice to have time to say goodbye <laughs> and I'll, we'll see you all next week. Yeah, take care, everyone. Um, remember that the Free Palestine Melbourne rallies are back uh, back on from this Sunday, 12 p.m. outside the State Library. Is that correct? Um, yes, I believe so. Yes. And also uh, a plug for people to get down to Camp Sovereignty, which is um, ongoing constantly at uh, so-called King's Domain. Join Uncle Robbie. Uh, he's got a lot to teach people um especially if you're not familiar with the earlier establishment of Camp Sovereignty around the Stolen Wealth Games. I think it's really important for folks to get down. Um, Yeah, yeah. get down there. You don't have to camp. You can just go for an event or check it out, see what's happening. Exactly. And tune in to Bundles Fire on 3CR 855 AM on Wednesdays from 11 AM to 2 PM. Well, that uh, takes us to time. So we will catch you next week on Thursday morning breakfast. But for now, uh, stay safe and... Um, We will see you soon. Bye. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.